This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. In the end, the Ford PCs went ahead with their legislation to impose a contract on the province's education workers, and the 55,000 CUPE members walked off the job in a province-wide protest on Friday. And this means most schools in the GTA will close to in-person learning for the duration of the strike. The governing Tories used the Constitution's notwithstanding clause to pass their controversial bill called the Keep Students in Class Act. Certainly, this is more of a provincial issue than a municipal one, but it affects everyone in municipalities across the province. Our tune into the town panelists weighed in on where we were during Fight Back on Thursday. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by Anna Bailau, former Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor, Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO, and David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. Well, let me say, first of all, that that the, the, the province, by, by talking about the notwithstanding clause, has transformed a labour dispute into a constitutional issue, which is bizarre. They shouldn't be doing that. They're using it like it's taffy. Uh, the, the, the notwithstanding clause is a very important part of the Constitution and should be used in such a way. The way out, it seems to me, and I don't understand why it has not happened, is that there should be compulsory arbitration between the two. If the two sides can't get together, then compulsory arbitration should be applied. And secondly, uh, the, the, the province should then withdraw its rest of the threat on the union that it's going to take away its striking rights. Lauren, what do you think? I think that it's really dangerous to talk about taking away workers' right to fair and collective bargaining. Like David said, he's he's taking a labor dispute and turning it into a constitutional issue. Even Justin Trudeau said that he wasn't in fan like a, a fan of what was going on. So I don't know what the solution is, but it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Um, if the teachers, and, and then it looks like they are going to go on strike, they will be getting fined $4,000 a day. Right. QP itself will be fined $500,000 a day. So this is like big money. I know that a lot of education workers probably can't afford to be throwing around $4,000 a day. Who can? Um, but the right to strike is pretty important, I think, and a lot of people agree with that. So. You, I think you misspoke there. You said teachers, right? And then oh, education, it, education, education I'm so workers. Sorry. I keep no, it's, that. it's, yeah. it's no, yeah. it's okay because some of uh, the education workers are like teachers in that they're assisting developmentally challenged children, children with autism, etc. So yeah. they they do have a sophisticated skill set, no oh, doubt. Sure. And custodians, I mean, uh, support staff of an office, like these are all very functional, critical roles for schools, right? Anna Bailao, your initial thoughts. I mean, this is a serious, serious action that is being taken against workers' action. And I think we need to think about the impact that is going to ha- happen and, and, and is going to have on any labor negotiation in the future. What, what does this mean for the, for the workers' rights in this province, actually? Is this, is this the new normal? 
but it's uh, one thing that I would like to add is that I think this is also a symptom of what has been happening. You know, now everybody is talking about kids need to be in school. Well, kids needed to be in school for a long time before, and they weren't in school because of lack of investment, actually, because we were one of the jurisdictions that had kids at home the longest because the investments that needed to happen in our classrooms uh, to have, you know, uh, uh, the the facilities to, to deal with the COVID weren't there as well. So I think, you know, to say that it's all about the kids now, it's a little bit misleading because it hasn't been about the kids for a long time. David, is it a good idea to actually shut down the schools uh, in the event of tomorrow's strike? Some, I gather, some some boards will be shutting them down. Some boards will keep be keeping them open, and I think they're just making the judgment on the basis of the resources uh, available to them. So I I, I think they have to leave it to their to their judgment. Uh, but I think that it's in the hands of, of the of the province and the union to to walk to talk through the mediator and and have the mediator bring them together and do and and, and bring about a, 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 an agreement that says uh, that there will be compulsory arbitration. The schools can go forward while while the arbitration is being done. Uh, and secondly, that the, the the province pulls in its horns and 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 and, and says, look. We shouldn't have used the, the uh, uh, such a powerful weapon as the notwithstanding clause, and we withdraw it. That will make the peace. The kids will go back to school, and we can go back and be more sensible again. David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto, Anna Bailau, former Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor, and Lauren O'Neill is Senior News Editor at Blog TO. They joined me on Thursday, hours before legislation was passed at Queen's Park to impose a contract on the education workers and ban their strike. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. According to a report this past week from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, three top grocery retailers made higher profits this year amid inflation compared with their average performances over the past five years. Loblaw came out on top over the other grocery retailers since it actually made more profits than each of the past five years individually. The company recently faced backlash over its announcement that it would freeze prices for over 1,500 no-name products. Joining me on Thursday to discuss this latest version of apparent greedflation, Ellen Roseman, journalist and consumer advocate. The thing that we have to remember, though, is if its volume of food sold in its stores was exactly the same as before and the profits went up, that would mean that it was raising its prices and it was getting more profits per unit of food sold. But I would argue that during the pandemic, Loblaws and, and the other chains, too, were probably selling a lot more food. Number one, uh, restaurants were locked up. Uh, many people were working from home. They were eating a lot more at home. They were shopping for food more at home. And many of them were ordering from uh, the delivery services that the supermarkets have. And I found when I was doing that for a while, I couldn't stand it because it's really hard to shop without seeing the food and touching it, feeling it, and so on. But um, those prices were higher. They tended to be much higher than in the store. There weren't the same discounts. There weren't the same half-off as the food was about uh-huh. to expire. And so those uh, things were all making it easier for the chains to make money. 
And then the other thing we have to remember is that they all own grocery stores, sorry, as well as grocery stores, they own pharmacies and drugstores. And they sell some food through there, uh, which is probably sold at pretty well the same prices, maybe a little bit higher than in the stores. But they sell really high profit items in gross, in, in uh, drugstores such as makeup, cosmetics, hair dye, um, you know, all those over the counter, um, uh, 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 cosmetic items are very, very expensive. And, uh, that raises the, the profits. And in this report, uh, the author, Sylvain Charlebois, talked about the fact that what we need to do, if we can, I don't know if we have the power to do that, is to ask these big companies, Loblaw, Metro, and um, Sobeys, to break down what aspects of their profits come from food and what come from non-food items. Like even in the grocery stores, they will sell very expensive appliances and things like that. Oh, true, true. So uh, to really know what they're making on food, it would be great if they could separate it for us. It would probably be helpful for the investors as well because they want to know where the profits are coming from. Well, and and to your point, uh, it makes you wonder, shouldn't they have had record profits in 2020? Because as you said, we weren't going out to restaurants. The only place we were going was the pharmacy and the grocery store. So that was kind of like a form of entertainment in a weird way. Uh, you would You would have thought that that would have been the year where they would be making these huge profits or bigger profits. Yeah, the revenues probably went up a fair bit because all that restaurant food was not being sold, you know, except through takeout. And uh, not many of us were you know, finding that convenient. And also, it's very expensive with the uh, the delivery services and how much they take out of the bill. So uh, it was it was a time when the supermarkets could be selling a lot more. And uh, they uh, were, you know, more conveniently located. Uh, for many of us, we can't get everything we need to eat at a small independent store because um, it's harder to get at home and, um, you know, it's just not as easy to shop there. So we were probably going to the grocery stores more. And like you said, entertainment, just a way to get out of the house and enjoy our meals more and take out a whole variety of different kinds of food and uh in in the articles that I've read, they all say that their profit margin stayed pretty well the same, which is like three to four percent, which is pretty low for retailers. And the reason why it's low is that supermarkets have such a great volume of foods that they can make money even when these profit margins are low. I also remember back in February, remember Loblaw stopped stocking chips made by a specific yes, manufacturer, yes. Um, Humpty Dumpty, I think. It's not clear like where all these price increases are coming from. Sometimes they're coming from the farm level. Sometimes they're coming from the manufacturer's level. And in this case with the chips, this is an international, you know, a multinational company that's setting the prices. And uh, I've noticed myself uh, when I shop, uh, the potato chips and all those variety of things are way more uh, inflationary than other things. And it's maybe because it's such an easy sell, you know, when people aren't feeling great, they go for the junk food. Yeah. And when they're watching sports at home and all that kind of thing. Ellen Roseman, journalist and consumer advocate. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, a hospital system in crisis. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
A headline in the Toronto Star this past week read, We're in big trouble. Critical care bed alerts at Toronto General and Toronto Western show a system under strain. On Monday of this week, an internal alert was issued at Toronto General that its ICUs were at capacity and might not have enough staff to keep all critical care beds open. The warning has since been lifted, but that alert is said to have been the third in the last month. In addition, there is now said to be an equivalent alert at Toronto Western Hospital. This is the backdrop, even before we get into flu season and during wave after wave of COVID. You'll also remember during the summer, we were learning of closed emergency rooms, 110 in total, at hospitals primarily serving rural areas. And wait times in the ERs, according to Ontario Health, are an average of 21 hours for an inpatient bed. But another report from August says 90% of wait times for an inpatient bed are 33 hours. On Wednesday, I was joined by two stakeholders to discuss. Dr. Alan Drummond is an emergency physician in Perth, Ontario, and co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. And Frost Jelena is the NDP's health critic. We have a health human resources crisis right now. The crisis was building for many years, but after the two and a half years of hell that every frontline healthcare worker went through, through the pandemic, uh, they need to feel respected, they need to feel valued, they need to feel supported. None of that is coming, and they are quitting in, in huge number. We are at 34,000 vacancies in our hospital. We are at 12,000 vacancies in uh, the community sector, like uh, long-term care, home care, uh, primary care. And uh, to give you an example, we used to have 7,400 members of medical laboratory technologists, like licensed. We're now at 6,200. We lost 1,200 did not renew their license. They are not going back to those working conditions uh, that, that basically are too harsh. Dr. Drummond, it was actually you quoted as saying we're in big trouble in that Toronto Star headline. What are you referencing specifically? Well, I think potentially we're in big trouble. Um, for a number of reasons, and uh, I mean the, the phrase "perfect storm" keeps getting rolling around in Ontario healthcare these days, but it's it's actually factually correct. So, so here's the problem um, that I see and that I have been seeing uh, currently clinically uh, in my emergency department. I, I use Perth as a bit of a bellwether to try and understand what's happening elsewhere, and usually it does reflect what's happening elsewhere. And so, what we're seeing is uh, an increased number of COVID patients who need to be admitted to hospital. They they do not have pneumonia, they do not need a ventilator, they do not need an ICU, but they're usually fairly frail elderly people uh, who get COVID uh, and can't cope. They can't get out of bed, they feel like they've been hit by a truck, they can't feed themselves, they can't toilet themselves, the family, home care is a shambles in Ontario, uh, and their families can't cope, so they end up being brought to the hospital and admitted to an already overcrowded hospital where they will spend routinely a week or two just trying to get their strength and uh, some sense semblance of independence back. Take that 
couple that with uh, with uh, influenza. It was a very bad influenza season in Australia. So uh, it, 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 if that's what happens in, in Canada, coupled with COVID variants, uh, and now RSV for children in community hospitals, we have a big in, a burden of infectious disease. We have a government that is literally telling people, that, you know, the party's on, pandemic is over, take off your masks and enjoy Maple Leaf games. Uh, which is exactly the wrong message to send. So we have people who now think it's party time and the pandemic is, is finished. They don't need to wear masks anymore. Uh, coupled with uh, a, a lack of booster immunizations, a lot of people don't feel a need for it. And all of this is going to be piled on to a really fragile healthcare sector. Uh, our hospitals are chronically overcrowded, uh, which is why we have crowded emergency departments, which is why ambulances can't offload and can't respond. And so we get all these sick people occupying hospital beds uh, at a time when we have no beds and which at a time when our staffing is really fragile, we could potentially be in big trouble. So the mitigating factors would be get, get back on messaging with respect to public health measures that we've all been taught over the last three years, get both all the COVID boosters that you can as well as influenza, and hospital uh, administrations, most notably the government, have to open up the wallet. Uh, to retain the nurses that we are losing. And, and, and Ms. Jelena is not incorrect. Uh, we are losing nurses on a daily basis, uh, not only in our emergency department, but also on the wards, and we are losing technicians. So we that doesn't get talked about very often. The ICUs right. seem to get a lot of attention. The ERs get a lot of attention. But the wards are suffering as well. So, yeah, potentially it is going to be big trouble. Dr. Alan Drummond, emergency physician in Perth, Ontario, and co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, and France Jelena, the NDP's health critic. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. An 84-year-old Barry woman says she was denied a van rental in Mississauga due to her age. Staff at the car rental company Green Motion apparently told Elizabeth Schlarb she could not rent or drive their vehicles because she is too old. Some legal experts say that this move by the company could violate the Ontario Human Rights Code. We invited human rights lawyer Julian Falconer to offer his opinion on this case, along with Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Well, it's not the first time that we've heard of this sort of happening, thing happening with car uh, rental uh, companies. Uh, more, we've heard of it more in, from people going to the United States than here in Canada. Uh, we did check with the companies that CARP recommends in terms of car rental companies, and both of them assure us that this is not their policy. Uh, but our uh, view of it is uh, uh, sometimes these decisions are made by frontline personnel who are misinterpreting uh, the policy is assuming that a person, uh, because of their age, is not capable of doing something like uh, uh, driving, when certainly they shouldn't be renting to somebody who, to them, is obviously incapable of running the, the vehicle. But we all know uh, 35-year-olds who have bad backs or uh, football injuries who shouldn't be driving a car either. Uh, it's ageism and stereotyping of the of the worst kind, if that's what they're doing. Can you set age limits, Julian, uh, for conditions around, in this case, a, a car rental? 
Well, the simple answer is there is no simple answer, Jane. My apologies. I have to be a weaselly lawyer. <laughs> That's okay. Um, it is flat out age discrimination, but sometimes age discrimination is permitted. Uh, so we have to be careful to interpret uh, the conditions based on on the rationale for them and what options exist for someone uh, uh, of uh, uh, the age group that uh, uh, Miss uh, and I hope I pronounce her name correctly Schlarb Miss Elizabeth Schlarb falls into. So she's 84 years old and taking a look at the terms and conditions that Green Motion, the rental car company, set. They have a maximum age of 80 and a minimum age of 23. And people should know that it's very common that large car rental companies work with minimum ages or um, have surcharges on ages, right? Uh, There's a class action, for example, uh, as we speak, going on in Quebec, where uh, 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 youth, young drivers under the age of 25 uh, are taking uh, car rental companies to court on the basis of surcharges or refusals of service. So I'm not defending green motion by any stretch. I'm simply saying that we have to take a look sort of under the hood, if you will. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing? Well, they're they're not just proposing to charge a surcharge, because if you go on uh, green motion's website, they have a senior driver surcharge, 76 to 80, and they appear to charge $20 per day. But you have a refusal of service, a refusal to contract, um, and they would have to justify that. Now, if it's uh, uh, across the board, completely arbitrary, then my, in my opinion, an argument could be mounted under Section 3 of the Ontario Human Rights Code that actually provides, and I won't be the boring lawyer that reads you out a section of the Human Rights Code. I'll spare you that, okay? But okay. Uh, it provides that every person uh, has a right to contract on equal terms without discrimination based on, among other things, race, uh, sorry, age. So quite clearly, on its face, it would appear to be discrimination. But then how do they discriminate? Do they discriminate based on a surcharge because they have increased insurance costs? Are they unable to get insurance for someone X age? All these things matter. And then, of course, where is the province in all this? They license uh, uh, someone to drive who's 84, Ms. Schlarb. How does the province say we license it, but they're not fit to get a rental car? I mean, all of this, you know, this does beg questions, and I completely sympathize. Uh, you know, uh, it is very important that people are not denied services when they have talents, qualities, and skills, uh, probably better than somebody in their 40s who's a bad driver. Human rights lawyer Julian Falconer, along with Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bonnie in Richmond Hill phoned during our segment on age discrimination. My husband and I wanted to adopt a cat, 
because our cat had passed away. So we were doing a rescue, and we went, and we saw a cat that we really liked, and we had all these paperwork we had to fill out. We had to give them, and it took almost two months. Um, we had to give them three references, all kinds of stuff. And during that time, we would go almost every day to see the cat so it would get used to us. After two months, they called us and they said, we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is you qualify. The bad news is your age. And I said, why? And they said, well, what's going to happen to the cat if you die? I said, I haven't even thought of uh, dying yet. I was 60 at the time and my husband was 65. <laughs> Oh, and wow. they would not they would not let us adopt the cat until we got a reference of a friend of ours who was much younger who signed a thing saying that if we died something happened he would take the cat and look after it. Helen in Brampton phoned about the healthcare crisis in Ontario hospitals. My sister had a procedure on Monday and uh, her colon was perforated. And so she had to be kept in a Credit Valley uh, hospital and uh, they had to put her in the, in the hallway, right? So she is still there three days later. She will still be staying until Thursday or Friday, but they put her in the dementia ward. So oh, wow. <laughs> there's people screaming all over the oh, place. No. I was there last night and I mean, it's not their fault and they all need help and yeah. the nurses are running around. I feel like going to the rooms myself to help them. Uh, my sister had to wait over four hours just to help her to go to the washroom. So the nurses are doing their best. There's no doubt about it, but it is a very sad state. I just wanted to share that experience. Thank she you, Helen. Be out by the end of the week. Shirley in St. Catharines also called with a firsthand story on the healthcare crisis. It was just before COVID hit and I got E. coli and I was taken by ambulance and I was in emergency for three days, shifted from various spots and hurrah, they were taking me upstairs. Well, I was in a four-bed ward. I was the fifth bed. My bed was at the window between two bathrooms. I had no TV. I had no radio. I had no... I had nothing. I couldn't reach anyone. And I was there for another four days. Three of the other patients were unfortunately, waiting for long-term care homes. I got nothing. Lisa in Toronto phoned in on this topic as well. My sister is very sick. I took her to Emerge. We sat there for eight hours. The next day, they send her home. She hasn't been able to keep anything down. Finally, last Wednesday, we went back to Sunnybrook. They finally admitted her again through Emerge. We bypassed everything because the doctor saw how sick she is. So now finally she is in Emerge. Yeah. And she was in the hall for three days. Wow. Friday night, she finally gets a room upstairs at midnight. These two young um, fellows, doctors, come in and tell her the next day, well, you know, you'll have to go home the next day. They changed her tune. She's still in the hospital. They found out she has cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it's, a, it's a nightmare. And now... 
Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this past week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph, who phoned about the plight of Ontario's education workers. I'm part of the system more or less because I drive a school bus, so I, I'm in contact with the um, teachers and with the education workers. And I can agree that the, um, the education workers, I guess, in the classroom, definitely, I believe they deserve a raise. Um, do they deserve 11.7? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think more in the line of a 3.5% raise is, is reasonable. The problem is with giving them the 11.7, it sets a dangerous precedent because then the teachers' unions are going to say, whoa, there it is. There's 11.7. That's our goal line, and it'll be the civil servants. Everybody's going to go and say, hey, the uh, workers all got 11.7. We're going to go for the same thing. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.